0: Living Local, Telling the Stories That Connect Us, a United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County podcast.
1: Poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. When William Wordsworth said that, he was talking about the art created by poets like Kavan Cortez-Jones. At age 19, Kavan was deeply affected by the death of Dontre Hamilton, the African-American man killed by police in Red Arrow Park in Milwaukee. Kavan channeled these feelings into his poetry and has become one of Milwaukee's best young artists, often lending his talents to Precious Lives live shows, a partnership effort between Precious Lives and United Way to help give voice to the issue of gun violence and amplify efforts to solve it. Kavan is proud to say that his poetry is for everyone. He writes about tough issues, but also about the sights and sounds of his city, seamlessly melting together a light observational style with more difficult topics. To begin this episode, here is Kavan as he recites his poem, Paris of the Midwest.
0: I had writer's block for three days. My notebook hadn't felt the fingertips of a finished poem caress its pages for 72 hours. It was mental torture. As emerald serpent mornings were constricted around those purple phoenix nights. Those abstract colored beasts were the symbolism of my time of day. I was wonder lusted. My lust to wonder was lavender as the naked lights I saw when I closed my eyes. I wandered downtown and climbed to the top of the US bank building. Fink daggling, the sky was a purplish blue quilt on my shoulders. The moon wore a big Wisconsin cheese smile. I could see the whole entire city from that height, probably even as far as Lambeau Field. If I had my glasses, I sat, I wrote, I scribbled. I ripped pages out of writer's block syndrome. A perpetual headache throbbed. It felt like an anvil was dropped on my head. It slowly went away, with they seldom felt June breeze. I let sights of the city take my breath away. I saw an inundation of cars on Wisconsin Avenue, the epitome of New York's Times Square streets. Blacks and Germans relieving out the east side, pubs, taverns, and eateries, intoxicated and standing cross-legged. St. Patrick's Day is the greatest night to binge. Budweiser, blacks, Miller, Blue Ribbon, Heineken, Golden, Brown, and Bubbly getting their cubs. I saw bikers in their black polyester tights cycling down the oak leaf Trail, a single white light flashing in front of their rear wheels. Bisco was in flimsy bikinis and Hawaiian swim shorts at the North Point pub. Rear seated on outside umbrella tables, slicing their tongues down frozen custard on a cone. I saw Oakland Avenue. Thrift store hippies were coming out the Goodwill. The thin aroma of artificial cheese pizza from the Little Caesars. The smell of brilliantly cooked and seasoned lamb meat was coming out the Oakland rose restaurant. I heard talented guitarists and ambitious slam poets doing their thing in the Myanmar Theater. Mother Nature's daughter, Sandy, flashed a light, signifying the start of a new performance. Blissed up performance gain to get a CD out of your recording, $2 cost. Nostalgia I gained when I saw the past four years of my life embodied in one building, Riverside High. Unwritten memories, two-faced faces of so-called friends. The days of Rome 321 and 317 Mr. Moga Poetry Club days gives me mental tears. I ask God for a panacea because I am allergic to nostalgia. It literally takes my breath away. I had breathed once more when I looked at my beautiful downtown home city lights. I can honestly say, Cream City, you are the Paris of the Midwest. If your arch-nemesis Chicago has something to say about it, call up some Packers fans to teepee its Sears. Uh, I mean, Willis Towers with rolls of cheese. I'll take your cheese curse over a chi style hot dog any day. Your smooth-selling Marquette interchange-gripping Harleys give you more Motown than the Motor City of Detroit. If you force trucks are mediocre to your motorcycle, you put the slam in my poetry you put the slam in this poem i feel like a million walking when i walk your streets i love you milwaukee
1: wow what an awesome tribute to this city <laughs> i could like see it and so before we started recording you said you're a a bike rider an avid bike rider so is that something that you thought of while you were riding around like riding down oakland
0: I, I wrote that. I was like, that's like the first uh, poem I wrote, like right after uh, graduating high school. I was so infatuated by the East Side and Oakland Avenue. Yeah. I went to Riverside, and I remember going to the Miramar uh, open mic. Sandy's the person who who hosted. She flashed the light, get a recording in your performance, to make sure everyone gets off stage. And uh, I was so infatuated by that. And uh, biking is something I do yeah. for fun. It's. Again, it's like it's like up there with uh with poetry. Poetry is kinda of a little bit above and uh yeah, and uh wonderlust is is what it is. And uh the metaphor Paris of the Midwest is is to say, uh, why not compare uh Milwaukee to Paris?
1: What is your process for writing these poems?
0: Um at first, my, and my process now was uh, I used when I was eighteen. I used to just write out a poem. It was just it would just come out. Then I would I immediately type it up because I knew one day I was gonna uh, self publish a poetry book. So I immediately uh, type it up and then I would just let it sit for like like get away from it naturally and like for like a month or maybe three months or a year and not get back to it and uh, uh, fi- finalize it. Once I once I print it out, once I'm on the third draft, I put all the the, the red marks on it, and then I fix it up, and then I get into the memorization uh, process. And that process goes. Um, I record myself now and um, read it over, like like song lyrics. And before I know it, it's there. I've managed to memorize like eight minute monologues, in my cover hours just like wow. reading it over and over. And I can feel I can feel like this burn in my in my frontal cortex. That's, I can I know that it's getting there. Really. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, how do you establish kind of the tempo and the rhythm that you use when you're you're reciting your poetry?
0: You know, um, I, w- I, w- I would have to be you to, to kind of uh, hear the rhythm. Okay, I, w- I would say cause, really because y- usually people uh, usually people find things that I. I don't I don't know what they're getting out of it, but like they they hear the rhythm and they and they hear that. But once if I were to recite that poem again, I would probably hear the rhythm myself. To me, it's just the poem. Like I can't I can't I can't see anything when all the imagery that I'm painting. I can't see anything when I'm reciting the poem because I'm giving it to the audience. The audience sees it. It's for it's for them to see.
1: Is it almost like an out of body experience
0: yeah, for you? Yeah, you can you can, you can say that. When I'm reciting, I don't I don't think about the poem because I know I have it in my head already.
1: And so, same with the the hand gestures. Obviously, you can't see this on the podcast, but yeah. you performed a couple of poems for us just mm-hmm. about an hour ago, and you had some some hand gestures. And I was wondering, is that is that kind of unconscious as well?
0: Um, the first time I recite uh, the poem, I, I naturally start to move because I'm trying to connect the words uh, to my body. And eventually once I keep once I keep reciting it, when I keep going it over and over, I don't have like anything choreographed on the paper, like I do this here, I do that there. And it and it naturally changes every time I perform or it gets better and better every time I perform it. I don't I don't choreograph anything for it.
1: So Kavan, you're relatively young. You're twenty two years old, yeah. you're a college student. Yeah. Um, grew up here in Milwaukee, graduated from Riverside High. You're kind of visiting here at United Way today, and we were talking a little <laughs> bit about competition, and that you you don't write your poems for competition, and and you you don't enter competitions. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons you said was because a lot of times in competitions, the subjects that are win the
0: are the same. Are the
1: same. Yeah. And what are those subjects?
0: Um, are, are, are Black Lives Matter and like feminism and like your your super depressed life. It's like okay. I ha- I write about I write about like all those things, but some I see a lot of poets like they they get trapped into writing about those things uh constantly and they constantly circle around uh in the same bubble at the they're great they're amazing what they do they're writing amazing poems better than mine but they're not like growing and exploring like other things like Paris in the Midwest is kind of like me like exploring like other things besides slam I was like that's like like that's like, like like a poem like that will never get like a ten in slam because that's that's how I feel because it's probably it's probably too long, or it's not—it's not the usual thing that people want to hear. I don't hear a lot of poems. I don't hear a lot of slam poems, like about the city, unless it's about like violence or okay. something. Okay. And I write about those things. That's what—that's what the Field Cafe poem and uh, Emmett Till poem. And it's like when I started writing the Emmett Till poem, I was like, "How how am I going to be different from all the other poets?" And so, and in, in my head, before I even start writing it, I, knew I was going to say "I," as as in "I am Emmett Till" instead of. Uh, Instead of explaining a story as Kevon Jones, the poet, I was like, I was gonna become Emmett Till. I was gonna write as if I were Emmett Till to make it uh, unique. I studied like nineteen um, fifties and forties like um, vocabulary for the poem, like uh, wazoo and and uh, the 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 st- st- stutter and uh, ankle biter, uh, Wolf, what's smooches that? and. Huh? Wolf Whistle? Wolf Whistle. Yeah. That's all from the fifties and forties uh, slang that I studied. Today. Which is right the,
1: the the time around when Emma Till's mm-hmm. story kind of happened. Well, mm-hmm. I'm definitely gonna have you share that that piece because it's just incredible. But I have one more question before mm-hmm. you do that. What does writing poetry and, and performing, what does that give you? Mm-hmm. What do you get out of that?
0: It's, it's uh, I, I see my, it's, you know, a lot of times, uh, some of the time, I don't see myself as like a poet. I see myself more like a hip-hop artist or, or a guitarist or this, or this visual artist. A lot of my poems are inspired by, by visual art and people watching. It, it, I, get to, I get to give people a different uh, perspective of things. And, like, I feel like right now at 22, all, all the hard work I've put in the past few years, like selling, selling 400 books, selling over 400 books, and, like, Moving out, like that's that's unheard of, and like to keep to keep a, to keep ahead of the game, I, I that's that's what keeps me that's what keeps me writing, and plus I'm almost done with my my 56th uh, composition notebook in the past 10 years. But one thing that keeps me writing is I want to reach 100. In like wow! The, in like the next 10 years. Isn't
1: that funny? I w- I work well with those kind of goals too, where it's just like I just want to, you know, have the visual of yeah, having that yeah. many or get this certain number.
0: Yeah, like some of my friends, some of my friends and stuff, they write their poem, they write their poems on their phones and stuff, which is cool, you know, because of technology they recite their they recite their poems on their phone and all that. But if you're if you're new to it, that's cool, but. Uh, a lot of the folks that hang around they 're like veterans, and it 's like you write all your poems on your phone you're like you could lose that you could phone could crack, and then it 's like gone and it 's like I was like I like to be more primitive this is this is paper eventually, I type them up and stuff, but to say, see the slashes and burns on the page with the red pen after writing the full draft it look, it looks so good you know it 's beautiful like this 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 is a struggle you know
1: in your poem, another poem you performed for us today and that's available in your book is mm-hmm. called Fuel Cafe, which mm-hmm. is about the the coffee shop up on Center Street mm-hmm. that you found a real connection to and yeah. through that you kind of got interested in coffee shop culture and mm-hmm. and the poem starts out it's very observational. So you know what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're smelling in the coffee shop, what you're doing there, the people you meet. And then it kind of takes this this turn, it's kind of lighthearted, and then it t- starts to take a turn mm-hmm. into you're having a conversation with a couple of your friends about Dontre Hamilton, mm-hmm. um, the victim of a of a police shooting here in Milwaukee, very well known a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Why was that the right poem mm-hmm. to talk about Dontre Hamilton?
0: Um, yeah, at the at the beginning, I I, I, ca- I capture people with like with like the quote by the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I just I write out the imagery and stuff. That's that. That's how that's how the rhythm of all my poems has kind of been. It's always like this, this, this really nice persona, which which it, it starts off at the beginning, but then it gets it gets to the uh, to the real stuff. I always want there for there to be like a message or something uh, behind it, you know. And uh, and no matter what that that happened, that was that was true. Uh, we pick we picked up the Shepherd Express, and there was there was Don Trey Hamilton, and I was I remember a league observing in marches. And stuff. And was that
1: back shortly after after that happened? After he was killed?
0: Yeah, uh, that was December. That was December two thousand fourteen, and he got killed April thirtieth two thousand fourteen. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's been three years. Yeah. It doesn't seem like that long. I was was nineteen.
1: How did that affect you?
0: Um, how did it affect me? It. I, clearly, it stayed with you if
1: it if it found its way its way into your conversations, into your poetry.
0: It was it was it was a weird time because I knew I didn't, I didn't know how to feel about it. Uh, on the news, they were like uh, they made him seem like he was the bad guy. It was one o'clock in the morning, and like it was one o'clock in the afternoon, and when this happened, and it was it was weird. I think it's kind of self-explanatory how I feel about it because Dr. Hamilton is uh, is black, and I'm black, you know, and those kind of things. Uh, shouldn't happen I would say and uh um i have i have a, I have a kind of a smirk on my face as i as i um as I say that because it's so it's one of the ways of like coping with that hearing about it uh in the news you know to keep it keep a uh, put a positive spin on that a field cafe uh coffee shop and then you and then you add like the real stuff and you get back to the excitement again people heard that and it it sticks with them it's kind of like a stamp uh in the poem.
1: That's a way that you cope with it, or do you think that's that's a way that you kind of help your audience cope? Um,
0: it's it's the way I kind of uh, uh, help my audience. I would say, uh, I when it, when it comes to poetry, I want to appeal to everyone. I don't I don't I don't see I don't call myself like a like a black poet. I, I don't write poetry for black people. I write poetry for people. I write poetry for black people, white people, brown people, and not even seeing them as a race, but just as just as humans. You know, I like to connect with with everyone. I don't want I don't want for anyone to be left out. That's why that every time I write a poem, I don't want for anyone to be left out.
1: That's got to be hard.
0: Yeah, it. Um, the past few years, I've kind of ma- managed to to write about that. One thing one thing I like to do I write to, I like to write about things that are everywhere and people like to go to, like fuel Cafe. Sure. Like people, like when some of those people who are here, who have heard the poem in the past, I've performed it a bunch of times, they hear, they hear Field Cafe, I'm gonna be one of, the peop- one of the things that they think of. And I wrote a poem about like Lake Michigan, like Lake Michigan is like there. Every time you go to the lake after you hear that poem, it's gonna be a little bit like, oh, Kavon, come Kavon come wrote that poem about Lake Michigan. You know, Keep it, keeping, keeping it going, the circle going. Something, something that's keeping a poem uh, every day something
1: that's kind of universally relatable. Yeah. But maybe in different ways for different people.
0: Mm-hmm. People in Chicago will, will sympathize with the poem we wrote about Lake Michigan.
1: So I want to have you recite your poem about Emma Till. Okay. And just a you know a, a kind of note for our listeners um Emmett Till, if you're not familiar with the story, was a young man back in the 1950s Mm -hmm. who he lived in Chicago, went to visit relatives in the South and was brutally lynched. And so this poem does get pretty graphic. Um, So just to, to be conscious of that. But it's a beautiful piece, very moving and I think it would do great in a competition, but that's just me. <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> it's too long. So, um, so this is Kavan Cortez-Jones and his poem, Emmett Till.
0: Just a boy from Chicago, T'was down in Mississippi not so long ago When a boy from Chicago town Stepped through a southern dorm, Bob Dylan Bobo was my nickname, growing up in my hometowns, Black Mecca, South Side Chicago. Black-owned businesses, beautifully ebonized, my neighborhood's narrow passageways. Banks, libraries, grocery stores, schools, etc. Studded up and down my block. Negro couples dressed up daffa, chained their arms together and promenaded into the electric nightclubs. Men in solid color suits with glistening jelly roll and ducktail hairdos. Women in rockabilly dresses with chignaw and omelet hair wows. They shook their wazoo's off the wall to the jazz band's boogie woogie. Duke Ellington and Sarah Vaughn even blazed on stages. My mamma Mammy didn't have time for all the fast-paced leg gyrated midnight scandals. My mama didn't know the definition of lazy. Ma attended a majority white suburban high school growing up, received straight A's while upheaving me as a single parent, survived the 1920s and 30s racist daggers of discrimination while stacking massive bricks of long hours as an Air Force clerk. Sweats may have beaded on Ma's forehead, fatigue may have fathomed insomnia. Them old lily white bastards may have gotten under Ma's skin, but Mama never quit. I never went a day with a whole in my stomach my mama was not an extraordinary woman no you see extraordinary is too small of a word to describe my all the pennies my scraped up for me all the warm buckets of water my brought to me through the force of teeth and nails Ma was a walking fist punching society's malevolence mistreatment in the throat I pulled my weight around the house and mom was always working and on. I took out the garbage, washed out the threads, even cooked crispy pot sops and some good old cream corn was my favorite plate to make. Didn't know what it meant to be a man, but managing the house I believe was close to it. I was a heavy-set kid at Makash Grammar School. Polio as a little anchor biter permanently left me with the small stutter stutter. I did not let these minor impediments tarnish my self confidence. My best bud, Richard, even described me as a funny guy. Making people laugh made my brittle bones shudder with happiness. My grand and humor earned me a lot of dear friends in school. Classmates just magnetized to me. I'd just flipped the page in my life to 14 years old when Uncle Moses came to visit us from Ma's birthplace. Swamps in Bayou's blues of Mississippi. He was going to be skipping back down south with my older cousin, Willa. I begged Ma, please, oh please, can I go down south to visit relatives? Ma was worried about me, because racism was more severe down south than the north. My begging somehow worked. Mama, before I left, gave me a precious ring with my deceased papa's initials on it. Lewis Till. Never could come close to developing a relationship with my old man. He was a U.S. Army private around the time I was born. Ma told me he was executed for some v, v- violations He was a Negro in w- w- World War II fighting for a country which hated him. I'm pretty sure foul play played a tremendous role in his purposeful assassination. I got aboard the southbound train with a handful of freedom and respect. Money, Mississippi was a whistle community for cotton milling. Barely a hundred people inhabited it. Few sunsets in after a sultry day of cotton picking, sun beating my pigment, I headed with some scooches on over to the store. Brian's grocery and meat market Grabbed some bubble gum And there was a f-f-fine white clerk behind the counter Next thing I knew A woof whistle seeped through my northern lips Then I remember echoes of what m-m-mama told me One night I was piling some Z's in Uncle Moses' old wooden shack Two white men carelessly ripped me out of bed by the feet. I had no clue they were the white clerk's husband and his half-brother. I kicked and screamed, but next sign of life was miles away. They barbarically beat me, but bare fists to all I could see was red. My own blood tints my eyes. They dragged my maimed body to the Tallahatchie Riverbank and shot me in the head tied to a fan by barbed wire and thrown in the river. As I sunk, my body cried, what the hell had I done wrong? I'm sorry. Few black moons later, my corpse was poured out the river. My face had bloated up like a dead cow's stomach to twice its normal size. So mangled and disfigured, only way Uncle Moses could identify me was by the ring I had on reading LT. The white clerk's husband and his half-brother were acquitted by an all-white jury. Both were seen laughing, lighting cigars, and kissing their wives in the courtroom. Mama made sure I had an open casket funeral so the world could see what those clansmen did to me. I was Emmett Lewis Till. Born on July 25, 1941, murdered summer 1955 at age 14, all because I supposedly whistled at a white woman. Shall my memory live on for black and brown boys of the 21st century?
1: Kavan, thank you so much. Oh, for sure. That was Kavan Cortez Jones, a Milwaukee-based artist and author of the new book Club Noir. Living Local is produced by myself, Katie Kuhn, Melissa Hannon, John Waldbauer, and Brian McCaig. A special thank you to Ethan and Maeve McCaig for providing the music and voice talent for our introduction.